0: Thank you so much for joining the Gen Church Gen WAW podcast. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. It's 2022, or should I say, we're almost halfway through 2022. And we have so many exciting events, gatherings, and opportunities for you to connect around Generations Church. If you'd like to learn more about these events, gatherings, and opportunities, Head on over to mygenerations.church to learn more. Let's respond to the scripture and spirit together. So, obviously, we're taking a break from our series on master's class today. And we got Jake Nagy, who's going to be uh, speaking and sharing with us today. And he's going to be, we're going to be continuing kind of our um, sporadic series of asking for a friend. He's going to be speaking today on why plant a house church in Portland. And I'm excited to have him here. If you all want, would you all read um, Acts 1 verse 8 with me? I think it's going to be on the screens. Feel free to pull out your phone or uh, we got some Bibles over there if you need one. But this is what Acts 1 verse 8 says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, as we gather, as we have connection, conversations this morning, God, as we sing songs, we hear a teaching, we drink some coffee. God, allow us to see you today. Allow us to glorify you in the ways in which we speak to others, the responses we have, the way we sing songs, and even how we hear your words spoken through, uh, through Jake this morning. God, I just pray we're able to glorify you, to see you, to hear you, even with kids screaming in the back. God, it is an amazing thing to know that you are at work here in us and in the next generation. God, allow us to just see you tangibly today. God, we know you are present, and we take hope in that. And God, it's what brings us joy this morning. Father, it's in your sense that we pray. Amen. Jake.
1: I uh, I like what you said about. Hearing the kids uh playing in the background with a, a five month old. That's pretty much my reality at the moment is always hearing a baby <laughs> playing, doing something we are currently sleep training. Uh so we're we're trying to teach her to sleep in her crib, self-soothe, put her pacifier back in herself. And so if you were wondering why I have bags under my eyes, uh I'm I am a little tired these days, but uh some coffee and the Holy Spirit have been have been good to me this week. Uh I uh I really am grateful to be with you this morning. Um, When I first moved to Portland four years ago, I sat down with Kyle and had coffee and um, was just starting my residency and wasn't sure if we would stay in this area or if we would move. And we were kind of thinking maybe we'd be here for a year or two and then go up to Seattle. And I was just telling him about some of the things I was coming to love about this area. And he said to me, I think you guys have found home. And I thought, I don't really know about that. Uh, You know, uh, this, is, this is a brand new place, and, and I'm still figuring it out, and we'll, we'll have to see. And uh, Those words that he said have come to, to ring so true. This place has become our home. Um, it is a special place, and it's really special to see what God is doing here. Um, uh, as mentioned, I, uh, I pastor a church called Kynos in Northeast Portland, and uh, one of my favorite things to do is actually to see and experience different types of churches. Uh, I love to travel. Um, My undergraduate degree was in intercultural studies and theology, uh, which is a really specific program (laughs) that is not at most colleges. I uh, went to Biola University in Los Angeles, and um, so now getting to be a pastor and teach, I teach eighth grade Bible and a class called Passport Around the World. So I'm probably one of the only people in my program that actually perfectly use their degree... uh, to do with their career. So uh, before we get into it this morning, I um, I just wanted to share a couple of photos, and I'll, I'll tell you this. At Kynos, um, again, three or four Sundays a month, we meet around a meal. Uh, I love that you guys are doing the potluck um, all about food. Um, so we we have food, and we have a lot of conversation at our church. So there's a few times this morning that I am going to ask a question, and it's not a rhetorical question. I would really actually love to hear your thoughts. So um, please feel free just to uh to shout back out um, i I like hearing from you as much as I hope you would hear from me. So the first thing I'd love to do is I, I have some photos of a few churches that um, I've gotten to visit over the years. I love church architecture and what it reflects about a community and even a people. and so I just wanted to share a couple of these photos um, and might ask you just take them in for a moment. What do you notice? And their differences, their background, their style. What kind of people do you imagine being there? What stands out to you? So take these photos in for just a minute and then I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. These two... Really stand out to me, actually. Uh, The church on the left is from Germany. Uh, It was bombed during World War II, and uh, they left it without its roof as a sign to remember uh, how dark and evil the world can be, but that there is still hope. There were these two beams that had fallen, and they wielded those beams into this cross. And so uh, they gather there on Sundays with no roof. The church on the right is from Reykjavik, Iceland, uh, one of the most magnificent church buildings I've ever seen. There's uh, a ton of waterfalls in Iceland, and so the architects of the church tried to build it kind of looking like a waterfall. So, uh, two churches actually in a similar part of the world, but that are actually quite different and similar at the same time. Any other of these photos, if you don't mind just kind of flipping through those again, any that stood out to you? Anything that you noticed? Yeah, the one, I think it's right after this one. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yes, 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 yeah, that's that's in New York, that's Trinity Church in New York, and uh, on the left is actually a small prayer chapel at the Grotto, which is in northeast Portland, yeah, yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite spots to go and just spend some quiet time, and I thought it was staggering seeing the tall trees next to the church, and then the tall skyscrapers next to the church, uh, which is really cool, any, any other thoughts, anything that stood out to you, yeah? Yes. Because, uh, had a trips Africa, yes. And you don't need a building or a structure, no. but Man. people meeting out yeah. in the middle of everywhere. And the people are church and they just go out yeah. there and, yes. and enjoy nature and yeah. just worship God out there. Fantastic. Yeah, if you're watching that home, you saying just uh how awesome it is. This is just a church in, in Ghana in West Africa and um your experience similar to mine is that it's not about a building, it's about people and enjoying and worshiping God wherever you might find yourself. And so they're under a tree. The church on the left is also from Ghana. Um, it's someone's house, which is really cool. That, that Sunday, that was about four years ago, was one of the first times that I experienced a house church, kind of what my church is getting to do now. And uh, it was so special to, to worship there There was a lot of singing and dancing, more than I'm typically used to, for about 90 minutes before there was any teaching, so I was wondering why we weren't doing 90 minutes of dancing this morning, but that's okay. Uh, The church uh, atop there, that is called Saint-Chapelle in Paris, France, and uh, I'm a big fan of this organization called The Bible Project. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They do these awesome uh, designs and videos, they're actually based out of Portland, and for me, I'm a visual learner, and so often I learn by seeing pictures or, or movies, and uh, before a lot of people were literate, this church decided, let's take stained glass, and let's actually tell the entire story of the Bible, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, and pictures in stained glass windows. There's no words, but you can start on the left-hand side of the church and go all the way around, and you can see the story of Adam and Eve, the story of the Exodus, the people of Israel, Jesus born in Bethlehem the disciples, the early church, the story of Revelation, and just how powerful uh, it was to see these beautiful pictures displayed through this style of art, and yet, at the same time, despite the intense differences between these different churches, they have the same purpose, to unite people to Jesus and to each other, and so I, I just love uh, being able to see and celebrate uh, the uniqueness within different churches, but also the unity that we share as a church. Um, I live in Pastor in Portland. You all are in Vancouver. Uh, we live in different neighborhoods. We work different jobs. And yet, uh, we have the same purpose, the same mission, to love Jesus and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so, uh, as we get into uh, the, the story of Acts this morning, the book of Acts is really about the church, the early Jesus followers, Uh, I just wanted to take that moment to remind ourselves of the uniqueness and the unity that we share as brothers and sisters. So if you've got your Bible or uh, a Bible app on your phone, if you'll open with me to Acts chapter 1. Uh, The book of Acts is a story about Jesus and the church. And in many ways, it is uh, a bit of a sequel. Um, I don't know if any of you like sequels, but I love a good sequel. My favorite Star Wars movie is The Empire Strikes Back, the best sequel of all time. Uh, the Dark Knight, uh, Toy Story 2, Shrek 2, also great sequels. Uh, there's a lot of good sequels out there. And the book of Acts is kind of like a sequel to the gospel stories. What happened to these followers of Jesus after he ascended? What happened to their story? Uh, and one of the reasons why I uh, have really come to love this story, this book, the book of Acts, is because you see the church spread from one city across the entire known world at the time. It goes from a group of 11 Jewish friends to the most diverse, uh, <laughs> the most diverse religion in the world today. Um, and I love zooming in and looking at some of the specific people. I, I hesitate to use the word character, because when I use the word character, what comes to mind for me is like Luke Skywalker or Captain America or something like that. These aren't just characters from a fairy tale. These are real people, who lived real lives with real problems, faced real challenges. And they had a real faith in their Messiah, Jesus. And one of the people who most stands out to me is a guy named Simon Peter. I feel like I relate to Simon Peter a lot, mostly his mistakes. Uh, I don't know about you, uh, if you've ever had the chance to, to read Simon Peter's story um, or know anything about his background, but I wanted to just pause, take a moment. Is there anything that you as you've maybe gone through some of the stories in the gospels, anything that you know or remember about Simon Peter and his story. Just the fact that he, he uh blew it. Jesus <laughs> told him that yes. he was going to yeah. uh, deny him yes. uh three times. Yes. And he he didn't understand I don't yes. really understood it yet, yeah. but even when he did that how yes. Yes. Uh, Jesus found him
0: and yeah. You
1: know, yes. Him. Yeah. Restored him in many restored ways. Him. That's great. Yes. That's excellent. Anybody else? Anything about Simon Peter's story that stands out to you? I know that for me, there's quite a few pieces. Simon Peter's from uh, a small town called Galilee. He was a fisherman. He was not. Uh, probably the sharpest in his uh, friend group or in his community. Uh, he apparently did not go off to their version of college. He, he didn't go off to become a Pharisee or a scribe. He's working a, a working class job. He uh, was called to be a disciple by Jesus, which in many ways I'm always, I'm always surprised when Jesus calls his disciples and they just like leave their stuff and follow him. I'm always like, wow, what amazing faith. And then it hit me at another point that, while I think that's a part of it. There's another piece, too, where if I was a fisherman and a rabbi called me to come be, this is like a a scholarship in some ways. Simon Peter might see this as a path to a better career. So he leaves his stuff. He's kind of a bold guy. He does bold things. At one point, uh, Simon Peter and the other disciples are in a boat. They see this, like, being walking towards them on the water. It's dark. It's nighttime. They think it's a ghost. They're scared. And then Jesus says, hey, guys, calm down. It's me. And Simon Peter says, if that's really you, then tell me to come out and walk on the water too, right? He's just a bold guy, and he does it, and then he freaks out, and he falls and starts to drown. This is the story of Simon Peter, right? Bold faith followed by bold mistakes. And I I read that story, particularly the one that that you just mentioned about how Peter actually denied Jesus three times in his greatest moment of need. And Jesus told him, you're going to do this, like prepare yourself. But Simon Peter thought, hey, I'm way too strong I've, I've, I've learned way too much. I can never deny you, Jesus. And yet he does deny him three times. And yet that boldness appears again when Mary of Magdala comes and tells the disciples that the tomb is empty, the, the Easter story. Who's the first person that it tells us gets up and sprints towards that empty tomb? Simon Peter. And yet, at the very end of John's gospel, if you're in Acts chapter 1 and you want to flip like two pages back to John chapter 21, There's this interesting story, this is after Jesus' resurrection, Uh, Simon Peter has gone back to being a fisherman. Jesus told Simon Peter that he would be one of the the leaders of the early church, and yet he has apparently gone back to his old day job. Uh, And there's this really interesting story where Simon Peter, he's going out and fishing, he doesn't catch any fish the entire night. This is mirroring the story of when Jesus called Simon Peter to come and follow him. It's the exact same situation happening again. And then Simon Peter's coming in. He hears some guy on the shore say, Hey, toss your net out one more time on the other side. So he does it. And he catches so many fish that the nets begin to rip and tear. This is the exact same thing that happened when Jesus had called him the first time. Then he goes and he sits around a fire. He's grilling up some fish with Jesus. They're having a conversation. The last time Simon Peter was sitting around a fire, he was denying that he knew Jesus. You ever smell something and it reminds you of a certain person or a certain place there's a, a perfume that every time I smell, it smells like my grandmother. She's been passed away for many years. I don't know if you have a smell like that. It reminds you of a certain person, a certain place. I can imagine Simon Peter sitting there smelling that charcoal fire and thinking, oh man, the last time I smelled this smell, I was denying three times that I even knew Jesus. And then Jesus asked Simon Peter a question. It's up here on the screen. When they finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? Simon Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Then Jesus asked a second time, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? Simon Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. And then he asked a third time, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow What I love about this story is that just as Peter had denied three times that he knew Jesus, Jesus gives him a chance to three times reaffirm. Not that he doesn't know Jesus, but that he loves Jesus. This is grace. He's showing Peter, it doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made, I know that you love me, and I want you to know that I love you. And my ask of you is not to go out and try to prove yourself, Simon Peter, you don't have anything to prove. I love you, that's all you need. My ask of you is simply to follow me. And in following me, take care of my sheep. Now, what the heck is he talking about? Feed my sheep? Does Jesus have like a farm he needs somebody to take care of while he's gone? Like, what's going on here? It's not that exactly, right? Farming was a job a lot like being a fisherman. Not a glamorous job in their day. It was a working class job. And yet, Jesus often used this as a a symbol or a metaphor for what he was trying to do. right? Sheep are very easily... uh, they're easily, easily they're, they wander away very easily, right? They're not the, the sharpest uh, of animals, right? If a sheep walks off a cliff, many other sheep will follow them. And they need a good shepherd. The Bible repeats that metaphor from, from Psalm chapter 23. Jesus picks it up again. And then he shares it here with Peter. Feed my sheep. In other words, take care of the people that I've entrusted you to. You don't need to prove yourself. Simply love the people around you. And that's how the Gospels end. And then the book of Acts picks up pretty much exactly where it leaves off. So if you'll flip those two more pages back to Acts chapter 1 with me. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is on a mountain, a place that he had shared many memories with his friends. And he says these words to them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's telling his friends, I am leaving but you are not left alone. My spirit is going to be with you and guide you. And then he lists four really specific geographical places. Now, I I told you I'm a little bit of like a culture nerd and I like learning about different places, so I'm going to take a second and talk about the geography here. Jerusalem, okay, Jerusalem is the city that they are in. That is their immediate location. Judea is kind of the surrounding region that they were in. Samaria are kind of like their neighbors but they're a very particular type of neighbor. They are the type of neighbor that you can't stand. That you may be even if you're being honest, hate a little bit. We can look at Luke chapter 9. Jesus is talking with some of his disciples, John and James, and it says this in Luke 9, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village. The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. So they go into this village, Verse 53, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Duh, right? If we think tension between blue and red in our culture is tense, it doesn't come close to the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. Verse 54 says this, when the disciples James and John saw how Jesus had been treated, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Okay, There are some people that get under my skin. I have some neighbors that play music really loud at night. I don't know if I've ever been tempted to call fire down from heaven on them. Uh, Political divisions, tensions in our culture are quite tight, right? But this is a a deep-seated hatred. And so in Acts 1, verse 8, when Jesus says, You will be my witnesses. You're going to go and share about me. In Jerusalem, they're like, check, I got that. Sounds good, Jesus. In Judea, oh, okay. We'll do a little bit of traveling. Sounds good. And in Samaria... There has to be a pause in the minds of the disciples as they wonder, why would you want us to go to that place? And then the ends of the earth. Jesus, how? Why? What would that even look like? Those are questions that are worth pondering, both for the disciples and for ourselves. We'll come back to those questions in just a little bit. But uh, the story continues in Acts chapter 2. The disciples get together. Uh, There's this festival called Pentecost. So a lot of people are gathered together from a whole bunch of different places When I lived in LA, I would drive uh, to visit family for Thanksgiving. And uh, there's like an hour window where you have to get out of work in LA on Thanksgiving week to get out. Because if you don't, you will sit in traffic for like nine hours. Because everyone is leaving to go and visit their family. There's pictures that you can see, look it up online, of just traffic lights, I mean, for miles and miles and miles, right? And that's kind of what would happen for these big festivals. People would come from all over the place, come to Jerusalem from different parts of the world to celebrate this holiday with their friends and their family. So there's people speaking all these different languages and from different parts of the world, and they come together. And there's this powerful moment where, just as Jesus said, his spirit comes to be with his disciples. And they're able to start speaking different languages, which is kind of crazy, seems like something out of a movie. And the people in the crowd are confused. They're wondering why the heck this is happening. They're suspecting that maybe they've been drinking some wine early in the morning. <laughs> and Simon Peter stands up. He says, no, nobody here has been drinking wine, okay? This is what's happening. He says this in Acts 2, verse 22. My friends, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. In verses 25 through 35, he mentions King David. This is not like a random thing that he's mentioning King David for the Israelites was their greatest leader. He's saying, look, not even King David could be what we had hoped to be, the Messiah. And in verse 36 Of Acts 2, he says this. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom we crucified, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to their hearts and said to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, Friends, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and all your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now that's a bit of a crazy note because at this moment, Jesus' followers were numbered out about 11, maybe 20 if we're including some of the other people on the fringes. In a moment, the church goes from a dozen or so people, to 3,000, okay? So if they're meeting and having meals and praying together, logistically, this is kind of a nightmare, right? My, my wife, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram. She's Enneagram type one. She's very logistical. And if we're expecting 15 people at our house and 3,000 people showed up, that would be like her biggest nightmare ever, right? Things have suddenly changed pretty drastically. And so they have to figure out how are they gonna handle this community together as things start to change, Read the very next verse, Acts 2, 42. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to breaking bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by these disciples. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions, and they gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What a beautiful picture of what the church can be. They met together. They ate food together, what you all are doing next week in your potluck. They sang together, what you're going to do in just a little bit. They learned and they taught one another. They met in homes and they met in the temple courts or the synagogues. They met in small homes, and they met in big buildings. They met in places of work. They met with everyday people, and they shared the hope of Jesus with others. This, my friends, regardless of what you're building, regardless of what your language is, this is what the church is supposed to be, taking care of one another and pushing each other closer to Jesus. But at the same time, the church is still full of broken, messy people, right? Right? And uh, many things start to happen. It's not a utopia, right? We're still people, okay? The thing about church is that Jesus is perfect, but we are not. And so we still make mistakes, and we still kind of get into things from time to time. And actually, in Acts chapter 6, some maybe even discrimination starts to arrive in the church. There's these two groups of of widows and the church. Again, they were selling their possessions. They were using that money and distributing it to people who had need. And so there were two different groups of widows. One of the groups of widows... The Hellenistic widows, they they weren't getting the food that they needed to survive. And so the church says, okay, hey, we hear you. And they appoint diverse leaders to represent this group of people, the Hellenistic people, to make sure that everyone is represented, that they're cared for, that they see that they have value within their community. It's not that the church is a perfect place. We make mistakes. And then we learn together how to do better. It's okay for the church to say, hey, we made a mistake here. Let's learn together how we can do better, right? And then in Acts chapter 7, persecution breaks out. So, right? It's not just the mistakes we're making, but the world is an ugly place, y'all. It is not not pretty. (laughs) And and at times, it it is going to be difficult for us. Maybe not to the extent that it is for them. People are actually killed for their faith. And people start to flee. They actually have to leave. And ironically, this is part of what takes people to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? Right? But they're going through hardship, but they do it together. And part of this kind of spreading of these people, they actually become refugees, these early Christians, spreading throughout the ancient world. And some of them arrive in a place called Samaria. (laughs) Now again, if you remember, Jews and Samaritans, not fond of each other. They hate each other's guts. They want to call down fire from heaven against each other. But this is what the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On the day that persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So they're going everywhere. Godly men buried Stephen, someone who had been killed for his faith, and they mourned for him deeply. But Saul began to destroy the church. Check back on that story. It's a good one. (laughs) Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. A guy named Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. So he goes to Samaria, and he starts proclaiming the hope of Jesus. And he's also bringing physical and spiritual healing to people. Amazing things are happening. And the story tells us this in verse 9. For some time, a man named Simon, not Simon Peter, but Simon, the sorcerer, okay? Now, not talking about Harry Potter, okay? This guy was using some, some maybe dark spiritual powers. You know, he had been practicing sorcery in the city of Samaria, Right? And this is what the Jews would have been thinking to themselves. Well, of course, this is what we get for going to Samaria. Us Jews in Jerusalem, we're we're pretty good people, right? But those Samaritans, eh, I don't know about those guys, right? I, I laugh living in Portland but teaching and working in Vancouver. Sometimes I hear these type of things said about the other side of the river. I'm sure you've never heard any of that talk about us Portlanders. Never. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Right. Uh, but it's funny, I, I hear my kids say things about Portland, I hear my neighbors in Portland say things about Vancouver, and I think, people, we don't live in such a different world from this one that they lived in, right? But man, th- this level of hatred was different. So Simon the Sorcerer, he's been practicing sorcery in the city, and he was kind of known as someone who had great spiritual power. But it says this in verse 10, And all the people, both high and low, they gave their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called great by the power of God. So they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon, the sorcerer himself, believed and was baptized. Come on, y'all. Right? The church, the good news of Jesus is not just for cookie-cutter Christians. It's for former sorcerers and addicts, people who are broken and battered and bruised. It is not just for people who have lived a good life. It's for everybody in this this sorcerer, this dude who's doing all kinds of crazy evil stuff, even he decides to put his trust in Jesus, right? So you've got to think, right, Simon Peter, he's going to be excited about this, right? Look at verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of Jesus. So Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon the sorcerer saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Will you give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit? Now, let's pause here for a second. Can we buy God's Spirit with money? No. No. But Simon the sorcerer is new to this thing, right? He doesn't know any better. He's been a sorcerer, right? Sorcery, apparently, in their culture, it wasn't a free thing. You had to pay him. It seems like he was a rich guy. He's like, hey, that's what I had to do, right? People gave me their money. And now I want to, I kind of want to do this. So here, will you take my money? Right? Now this is a moment where Simon Peter could say, hey, that's actually not that's not how this works, man. Let me, let me tell you. Here's what Simon Peter says. Verse 20. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such even a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon the sorcerer answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said might happen to me. Now I want to ask you, which of these Simons, I think it's ironic both of their name is Simon. Maybe they're more similar than we might think, right? Which of these displays the character of Jesus in this moment? I think so, right? And we often read these stories as if maybe Jesus' friends and Acts can't make any mistakes. I just don't think that's the case. I think Simon Peter hated the Samaritans. We have pretty good proof of that. And so when he sees that these people are starting to follow Jesus, he feels like the power is slipping out of whose hands? His and his people's. Now it's for anybody, even sorcerers, even Samaritans, right? I think he's quickly forgotten what Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Not just the Jewish ones. Not just the ones that look like you, vote like you, believe like you. Even the ones who you've hated before. Feed those sheep too. And so the story continues into Acts chapter 10. This is the last story we'll, we'll read together. This is Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. A centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. This was not normal for Roman centurions. (laughs) He gave generously to those in need, also not normal, and he prayed to God regularly. Not the gods, not the Roman gods, he prayed to God. And one day, at about three o'clock in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? Even his response seems to show that he's been curious about this whole God thing he's been reading the scriptures the angel answered your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God that's an interesting verse right there now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter he is staying with Simon the tanner whose house is by the sea there's a lot of Simons in these days a lot of Marys as well (laughs) verse 7 when the angel who had spoke to him had said had gone, Cornelius said to his two servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, he told them everything that happened and sent them off to Joppa. Bring this guy back, Simon Peter. Not just any Simon. We're looking for Simon Peter. Now think about this for a moment. A Roman centurion is not just any Roman soldier. right? There were six centurions kind of over each area. This guy would have been one of the main oppressors of the Jewish people. If you think Simon Peter hated the Samaritans, let me tell you, this guy felt pretty intense things about Roman centurions, right? In fact, there were groups of Jewish people at the, the time that Jesus was living who would actually carry daggers inside of their cloak. And if they saw a centurion walking by, they would try to stab the centurion just to get rid of one or two more. They did not like each other. And so, Simon Peter tells us he comes home. It's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, same time that Cornelius is having a vision. Simon Peter has a vision. It's a strange but beautiful story. He has this vision where he sees this like sheet and there's these animals and then God tells him, eat these. Okay, is God trying to tell Simon he needs to work on his diet. Maybe, right, I haven't been to the gym in a while with my baby. Maybe this is a moment he's like, hey, Simon Peter, you got to take better care of yourself. That's not what's happening here, right? The Jewish people had a very specific diet. Many Jewish people still observe this diet today. It's called a kosher diet they would not eat certain foods because they considered them to be impure. But it wasn't just certain foods that Jewish people considered to be impure. It was also certain people that Jewish people considered to be impure. And those certain people were pretty much anyone who wasn't Jewish. And in particular, Romans and Samaritans. And so when God says, eat these animals, he's not just saying these animals are not impure. He's saying, no people that I have made Are impure, Simon. I have called you to take care of all of my sheep, not just the Jewish ones, also the ones that you hate. So I can imagine what is going through Simon Peter's mind as he goes off from Joppa, right, up to the house of this powerful Roman centurion. Is he thinking he's gonna perish? Is he thinking he's gonna die? What the heck is going on, right? Jewish people would typically not even eat a meal with a non Jewish person because they felt like it would defile them, it would make them unclean further from God. And now he's supposed to go to this guy's house? What's going to happen? Here's what the story tells us. Acts chapter 10, verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. It's a full day's journey. Imagine what's going through his mind as he walks. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. There's a group of Peter and his Jewish buddies, Cornelius and his powerful Roman buddies, This is like not just a one-on-one conversation. This is like a standoff, right? And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Now, what is so significant about that? In this culture, if a Roman centurion was walking down the road, people were expected to do what? (laughs) They were maybe going to stab them, try to get rid of him, but if a centurion was coming down the road... And you saw them, and you had allegiance to Rome. You got down on your knees. You bowed down. You showed them your reverence. But this time, the centurion gets down on his knees and bows down before Peter. Imagine what is going through Peter's mind. His whole life he's been oppressed by these Romans, and now a Roman is bowing to him. I bet his head might be swelling to the size of a balloon, right? But he looks at Cornelius, and he says in verse 25, stand up. I am only a man myself. You see, God has been doing something new in Peter's life. Through his time with Simon the Sorcerer, through this vision, right, through his travels, he was seeing that God is not just for him and his people. The message of Jesus is for everyone, all the time, everywhere. And so they have this conversation back and forth Peter begins to share, verse 34, he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, (laughs) but accepts from every nation those who love and fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. He shares the gospel with these new Roman friends. And then in verse 46, Peter says this, Surely no one can stand in their way of being baptized, with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. God doesn't show favoritism. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. And then I love this last line. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Simon is staying in the home of a Roman centurion, eating Roman food, doing Roman things, something he would have never expected in his wildest imagination. And friends, to me, that that is one of the, the best ways that God shapes us, changes us, works in our heart. It is through teaching in times like this, but it's through potlucks. It's through meals. It's through sharing life together, right? God works sometimes through visions, right? He works sometimes through our quiet time. That's absolutely happened in my life, but I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that the greatest way God has worked in my life is through you, through the church, through community, relationships with one another. relationships that don't hover at surface level and just talk about the weather or whatever, but relationships where we can really share who we are, our insecurities, our our fears. We can celebrate a promotion at work. We can celebrate uh, marriage. We can celebrate the birth of a new child, and we can grieve when we lose a job, when we lose a loved one, when life is falling apart. We can share life together, and through sharing life together, our enemies become brothers and sisters. The people who we want nothing to do with Become friends. That is the power of Jesus and his kingdom. Amen. And so, as we close, I think the band's going to come up here. I, I just want to finish with this question. You know, we, we are not uh, first century Jews, we are 21st century Americans who live in the Pacific Northwest. But I just want to ask you to consider uh, Acts 1, verse 8: it says, That you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jerusalem was their exact location. What is your Jerusalem? Who is your Jerusalem? Who are the people in your immediate circle? Could be your family, your next-door neighbors, the closest people in your life. Who is Jesus calling you to love in your Jerusalem? And who is your Judea? Right, Judea is the surrounding region. This is for us maybe, right? Greater Vancouver and Portland. I love that we're getting to do this together this morning because we are brothers and sisters in the same region. We don't live in Judea. We live in the Pacific Northwest, but we're in this together. What does it look like for us to love our region well? And maybe the hardest question, who is our Samaria? Who is your Samaria? Who are the Samaritans in your life? the people who think differently than you, vote differently than you, live a very different life than you. And if you had it your way, you would never have to interact with them. Because Jesus calls us to love the Samaritan just as much as he calls us to love our neighbor that's easy to love. He calls us to love those who are far off just as much as those who are near. And really, the more I follow Jesus, the more I realize none of us (laughs) are really a whole lot nearer or closer. We're all just trying to to go through life, we have questions, right? No matter our background, we all have a need for Jesus. So my question this morning, as we finish, is just to consider, what is your Jerusalem? What is your Samaria? What is your Judea? And what is your ends of the earth? That could mean an organization, a nonprofit that you could support, a mission trip, maybe someone who has come from the ends of the earth. There are many refugees that are living within our, our cities and neighborhoods here in the Pacific Northwest. The ends of the earth have actually come here to our Jerusalem. They've come here to Vancouver, to Portland. So what does it look like for us to love each of these people and share the hope of Jesus with them? If you will, pray with me and we'll sing together. God, thank you that when we were lost, when we deny knowing you, Jesus, you gave us grace and restored us three times. God, when we are angry and bitter towards our enemies and the people who we think, they just don't get it. God, you remind us that your love is not just for those who look like us and think like us. It's for everyone. It's for the broken, the battered, the bruised, the hurting, the lost, the confused. Jesus, your love is so sweet. Who else do we have but you? And so God, we just ask that as you remind and refresh us this morning as we sing together that your love is for us. Would you propel us, God, out of this place into our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria to love our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, our teammates, the people who bother us and annoy us. Would you teach us, Jesus, to love everyone around us as you would love them, Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the Jen
0: Churchwa Podcast. I hope today's teaching encouraged you and maybe even challenged you to respond to the scripture and the spirit so that you can live your faith every day. Thanks for checking us out. Have a great week.